Today, we are talking to a foster mom who has had one wild ride. Join us today on Fostering the Future. Welcome to the Fostering the Future podcast, a show about all things child welfare, dependency, adoption, and foster care. Here are your hosts, veterans in the world of child welfare, Jack and Kat. We believe that every human has incredible and equal value regardless of what side of the courtroom we sit on. We hope that everyone feels welcome and accepted here on Fostering the Future. Make sure you follow us on Facebook or Instagram as Fostering the Future Podcast, or check us out on our website at fosteringthefuturepodcast.org. This is Jack, and I'm here with Kat, and today we have a special guest, Nicole, who has had such a surreal experience since becoming a foster mom, and we are so excited to have her here to share about it. So, Nicole... Let me ask you a very serious question. What is your favorite drink at Starbucks? I love a venti, non-fat, chai, extra hot, no foam, no water. Whoa, 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 whoa. No water? No water. They put, ex- they put extra water in the chai and it dilutes it. And I like the stronger... Flavor. That's so interesting because when I make chai at home, it's so much stronger. This is so mind blowing. We can just end the episode. <laughs> I feel like we're done. We've done our job today. I like. I've literally. Uh, I don't know what to say to that. Tell me how long you've been a foster parent and what that looks like in your home. I have been a foster parent for approximately 18 months and I currently have six kids in my home. I am a single foster parent and I've had I think approximately 17 kids in the home since I started fostering. Wow. Did you say 17? I have. You've been busy. What? Uh, you know, there was obviously some shorter term placements. Right. Um, I mean, well, unless you had 17 kids at once <laughs> in a year. Now. Definitely not. Wow. So you've said yes a lot this year. I have said yes a lot. I think um, placement loves you. Oh, they do. <laughs> <laughs> I've kind of feel like I've become kind of the person that gets called for kind of specific things. Might be a baby that has some extra needs or a teen that has a reputation for being a little bit rough. But the kids in my home right now range from eight months to 17 years old. That's pretty incredible. Oh my goodness. Um, Can you tell us what your first experience with foster care was? I, for my entire life, have wanted to adopt. And I always thought that that would be through private adoption. I didn't know 
really anything else. I remember trying to convince my parents to adopt when I was like 12 years old. I tried to convince them to do an exchange student program. <laughs> Wait, you wanted them to send you? Or? No, 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 to bring a kid <laughs> into the home. <laughs> um, and I don't know why. I, I have no idea why. And then I uh, learned about the Guardian Ed Lightham program and I kind of started my journey there. I never, ever thought I would be a foster parent. My mindset was I would be become too attached and I couldn't handle the heartbreak. And that is something that you hear so often from people who are giving you the reasons why they don't want to be a foster parent. And isn't it funny that once you're a foster parent, like that's so like the last thing you need to worry about. Like it's real. There's really so many more challenges than that. And, you know, not that that's not a challenge, but. But my perspective changed. That is not what's important. I am an adult and I can handle the hard emotion and I know how to grieve in a healthy way. Those kids don't. And they deserve to know attachment and love and it's kind of the only thing that I can give them even if it's just for a short amount of time give them someone who's willing to have their heart broken for them yeah well okay so you were you you decided to become a guardian ad litem and then what was it that pushed you into wanting to be a foster parent I just saw not great homes honestly and I saw some really great homes but I saw some homes that I was like I can do this and I can do this better mm-hmm. Not knocking anyone, um, but it just made me realize that I could do it. Yeah. And I, I, I could do it. I had a little bit more education as a guardian ad litem and, you know, a little bit more trauma training. And I learned about that and I learned more about attachment. It just seemed kind of like the next natural step kind of in that journey. Well, and that's interesting because something that we've talked about before on the podcast is how a lot of people are like, oh, I'm not that type of person. I can't be that type of person. That's not me as a foster parent. I think it was when we were talking to one of the foster parents where we said it doesn't take any anything special. Like there's nothing extraordinary about me other than I'm willing and I have a heart for it. And I just said, yes, you know, you don't have to be, you don't have to have superpowers to be a foster parent. You just have to be willing to offer your home and your love and your family, you know, so you as a guardian ad litem saw, you know, I can do this. I'm seeing these homes. This is definitely something I'm capable of. And that's what drove you. Yes. And I, I had learned how to advocate and I had learned how to find the proper resources through all of that. And it just kind of made sense. I have legal background professionally, and then I had gained knowledge in the dependency system through the Guardian Ad Litem program, and it just seemed to make sense and be the next natural progression. Now, from the moment the thought entered my head until I signed up for PPT was a full year. I gave myself a lot of time. I didn't really talk with anyone about it. I kind of just thought about it within myself. Can I do this? Am I capable? Am I ready? And then about a year later, then I started talking to my family about it because I knew that as a single person, I couldn't do it alone and I was going to need my immediate family's support. You've talked a little bit about your experience as a gal and what that, how that contributed to your decision to become a foster parent and 
um, how that gave you a lot of experience in the dependency system. Can you give us a little more information on your other experiences at Guardian Ad Litem? I have been a Guardian Ad Litem now for October will be four years. I still have my very first case that I'm working and I essentially did all the things that case management should have been doing. Um, <laughs> have you uh, heard our episode from last week? I we just started that, listening to it. We find that to be common with cardiac ad litem. Yeah. Um, so I just found a doctor and found different specialists and started getting records, which I knew how to get records from my professional career. And I really just didn't take no for an answer from anyone. Um, so I had that case. And then being a newbie, we emails come out. I thought that my cam had sent this email to me and was like asking if I would take more kids. And I was like, how do I say no to this? <laughs> so I took on two more um, siblings and I am still in contact with them as well. Uh, I have not taken on any new cases because I still have both of those cases as well as being a foster parent. The fact that you are a single mom foster mom with a full-time career and all the advocating that I know that you're doing for your kids. I don't know how you also have time to volunteer with the Garden Ed Lightum program because that is a lot of work. It is so much work, but it is so worth it because I've really been able to help the families and I've really learned a lot about communication for myself, having really hard conversations with bio families or foster families or relative caregivers. It was really a great entrance into fostering because you have to have really hard conversations and you have to have them politely. And I can be a little <laughs> blunt at times. <laughs> so I had to really learn how to kind of soften my delivery and it really, really helped me grow. And I have such great relationships with these families. Um, I really, really enjoy it. I, I think that I will, I hope anyways, that I will always kind of be a part of their lives as they, these little ones continue to grow. So That's nice. really cool. And I know that when we talked to Trisha, she was telling us about her kids that are growing up and, you know, in their late teens and twenties, and she still connects with them. And uh, my father was a guardian ad litem and, Gosh, it's probably been five or six years since he's been a guardian ad litem, but he's still, I didn't know about this until I found out from the kiddo when I met him, um, when my dad brought him on a family trip and he let me know that, you know, my dad still buys him birthday presents and Christmas Aww. presents every year. And, you know, obviously my, my father has maintained that relationship with him because he was taking him on a trip with us. And, you know, it's, it's really neat. And, you know, to be honest, that was one of my first experiences with the guard, with um, the foster care system was watching my dad advocate for kids as a guardian ad litem and hearing the stories. And, you know, I think the guardian ad litem program is uh, I, I love the volunteers who work for the guardian ad litem program. I think that they have um, a great uh, compassion for helping kids and improving their lives. I'm very in awe of people who volunteer their time in that way, because I know in addition to it being a lot of work, it can be very frustrating to work in that um, in that realm. So, so frustrating <laughs> because even though you have a very big voice as a guardian ad litem, Sometimes you still can't get what you think and what you're advocating for is in the child's best interest done right. because there are so many other 
aspects to the case or other things going on. So it can be incredibly frustrating. I have the best cam in the world um, and she has been amazing and very helpful. And as a foster parent in Pasco, I am a guardian ad litem in Hillsborough. So there is no There's kind no of conflict. Mm -hmm. There's I, no overlap. In my job, sometimes we have no caseworkers or the others transition in caseworkers and I have no way to help families and kids because I don't have a lot of resources as a therapist. I, there's not much I can do for biological families, but you can see the need. And it's been really rewarding to work with guardian ad litems because they have the resources that I don't. Mm -hmm. And even when there's no case management, we can work together and fill that gap. And that's been really rewarding. And we can do that in ways that I can't do alone. Which that's is, awesome. makes the job much more rewarding. So can you tell us a little bit about your job and how it helps you to understand the legal process and the dependency care process? So I have been in the legal field for 14 years or almost 14 years. Um, I started out as a file clerk and kind of worked my way up with some awesome attorneys. I've been a paralegal for the past several years now. I am a litigation trial paralegal, so I have been in court worked jury trials, prepared for jury trials, um, managed cases from start to end, obviously under the direction of the attorney and at their direction, interviewed witnesses or been a part of depositions or preparations, have access to legal research tools. I have learned a lot. I know a lot. That sounds like such an interesting <laughs> job. <laughs> You're a great person to if, know. If they have a bring your friend to work day, we are volunteering. Can I we play like detective agency after this is all done? <laughs> it's great. I mean, I love it. I get to be a detective at times for my job. It is awesome. And I get to talk to really cool people, really smart people that I would never be able to talk to. People that need help. You know, you think about litigation and you think about like big ticket litigation. So most of my litigation um, is commercial litigation. So big companies and things like that. But at the end of the day, like there's still a person behind that big company and they've either lost something or something was taken from them. And so being able to advocate alongside the attorney to kind of figure that out and play detective and figure out creative ways to uh, get things done or strategize. Is it, like, is it like real life living of the TV show Suits? <laughs> Like, is that what we're talking about here? So many people ask that. <laughs> I do love that show. <laughs> or did. Um, Back before she had to become a princess. <laughs> you know, I guess there's some aspects of it. I mean, you don't go, you don't file a lawsuit and you're not in court within 24 hours. Like, that doesn't happen. Right. That's totally dramatized for TV. I mean, these cases are, like, drawn out with a year, two years. Like, so okay. it's not like that. Aaron Brockovich? Maybe a little bit closer to that at times. It can be a little bit closer to that at times. Um, and then sometimes it's super mundane and everybody would think my job is the most boring thing in the world. So you started 2020 as a single person with no kids. I did. And that changed really quickly. It did. Can you tell us how your family changed after you became licensed as a foster parent? So the minute I became licensed as a foster parent to awesome little kids moved into my home the following morning. <laughs> I did have contact with the 
um, prior foster parents um, and the kids. So I did have a normalcy visit the weekend prior, which I don't think happens a lot. So we actually had or they had a transition. So my first foray was with a transition where they got to come. We had phone calls for about, a, I think, about a week. Then we had a normalcy visit and then they moved in the following weekend. And so I went from single going on vacations <laughs> to the Bahamas, <laughs> kind of doing whatever I wanted to. Now I have two little kids. And that first weekend, I have awesome friends. They were bringing over gifts and clothes and shoes. And one of my friends came over and was like doing my dishes. Wow. Because my house was like. <laughs> now that's a friend. <laughs> yeah. I've known her since high school. I mean, I just, she was like, what do you need? And I was, I was like, I've got to put all their, their clothes away and stuff. Cause they went to school. I had to get them, you know, into school right away. It was a Saturday school was on Monday. I had been working, I was working from home that day and she's like, well, I'll just come over. And she like came over and did my dishes and like helped me put the kids clothes away. And so I had a lot of support and I still do. Um, I just want to uh, ask you about one thing that I've heard you say before. And when I heard it, I thought, you know, I wish more people looked at it like this and I've never looked at it like this before. And I think a lot of people who are single are very intimidated by the idea of becoming a foster parent without having another person there with them. But there's something that you have said that made me think, oh, wow, that is an incredible perspective about decision making. Can you share that with sure. our listeners? Sure. So I think one of the coolest things about being a single foster parent is I don't have to consult with anybody. I can make the decision that I think is in the child's best interest alone. And while that might be intimidating to some, I find so incredibly empowering because sometimes an outside voice dampens your internal instincts mm -hmm. and your gut instincts. And I'm really big on following my instincts. I love being able to make decisions on my own, sitting within myself. I also make decisions with a guardian ad litem mindset. It is always what is in the child's best interest. Now, as a parent, I may not want to do it because it's not the easiest thing, but I still tend to fall back on that um, manifest best interest of the child. And that is kind of what rules my decision making process, even if it's super hard on me. That's pretty incredible. And I, I just think when when I had heard her say, say that. I thought, gosh, what like what like a freeing thought, you know, to if you're a single person and you don't want to be a foster parent because there's not someone there with you. Well, hey, there's no one there with you. Yeah. You get to do this. Yeah. No one's going to tell you no. I know a lot of women who want to be foster parents but can't because their husbands aren't into it. Like you get to make this choice on your own. When they call you about a kid, you don't have to consult with anybody. Like these are great reasons to consider being a single foster parent. And I definitely think it's got to be harder to not like you have to have a good support <laughs> system, which it sounds like you do. But obviously without Jack Daddy, I couldn't do this. Definitely made um, made an impact on me when I heard you say that, that uh, that I really think people, more single people who are interested in fostering should consider that. Yeah. I mean, it's not to say that it's easy. Sometimes it's hard, but I have 
a sister who's amazing and I can bounce things off of her and she will tell me I'm crazy in a heartbeat if I need it. I have friends that I've made through this process that I can reach out to. I have my family, my immediate family, my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister-in-law who are all incredibly supportive and all have their own perspectives on this um, and who have varying degrees of trauma informed parenting knowledge or very traditional parenting knowledge depending on. But at the end of the day, I tend to sit with myself, make the decision first, and then ask others' opinions. Because I don't want my opinion to ever be swayed by what somebody else has to say. Because at the end of the day, I know myself best. I know my kids best. I know my home best. I know my schedule best. And it's really my decision to make. Uh And if I make a decision and it makes it harder on me, well, it's my decision to make. And I made it or I didn't. And I can't blame anyone. <laughs> Except for my, I can yell at myself. <laughs> um, but I find that to be so empowering. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of freedom in, in that. There is. That perspective came to me while traveling. My grandmother passed away a few years ago and I was completely devastated still am in moments, and it was three years ago, a friend of mine who was working overseas invited me over. He was in Paris, and I... Your friends just invite you to Paris, like, <laughs> hey, yo, I'm in Paris. Hop a flight, buddy. I'm like, what? Hey, loser, get in. Where are these friends? Where can I find them? I, why don't we have friends like this? Like, hey, yo, I'm hanging out in Paris just tonight. Internationalfriendfinder.com? <laughs> I've known him for years. He was there for work. He knew my grandparents and he knew how close I was to them. Within a few days of her passing away, I bought this ticket to Paris <laughs> and I went to Paris and um, for 15 days I went there and I went to Prague which was like my dream destination and I went we went to Switzerland and I was in Paris most of the time alone because he was working and I was I went to Prague alone I was so freeing I didn't have to make a decision with anybody <laughs> I walked around these cities with no phone service I would like map things out that is kind of when my perspective yeah. changed and I realized I was standing in the middle, but in the middle of the bridge in Prague with all of the, the saints and the statues that are on it. The name is eluding me. Literally just stood in the middle of it and was like, this is so empowering. And I don't ever want to travel with anybody ever again <laughs> because this is the best thing ever. I mean, you don't have to like ask what someone else wants to eat for lunch. You like find what you want to eat for lunch and you eat it. Oh, I ate croque madame and von Schaud every single day for lunch at various cafes. This is very relatable. Yeah. <laughs> There's just a ton of freedom in that. There's a ton of freedom in that. And that is really, I know that's kind of like a tangent, but that is really what changed my perspective and really showed me how empowering being alone can be or, or making decisions alone, not being alone. I'm not alone. I have, you know, family and support. <laughs> you but wish you were alone yeah. in your house. <laughs> yeah. Six kids. I wish I was alone sometimes. Um, and dogs and fish. I mean, there's just like so there so is something things. about like having to wait on the decision of someone else. You know, and like, like, what are we doing? What are we doing? What yeah. do we want to do? It's yeah. this like, it's exhausting. It is. And I had, I've had a moment like that too. You know, like when Hurricane Irma came, I had this moment of like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Like kind of waiting on someone to tell me what to do. Cause I was used to telling someone telling me what to do all the time. Finally was like, we're leaving. We're leaving at five in the morning. <laughs> this is what we're doing. And I had that per- a totally different kind of thing, but that perspective of like, I'm actually in charge. 
and no one's going to tell me what to do. <laughs> yeah. know? In fact, I haven't enjoyed being told what to do in the past, and I'm the boss of this place, so I can relate. There's a ton of freedom in that. There is so much freedom. And, you know, I mean, with six kids now, I'm definitely not making like decisions by myself when you have teenagers like they're telling you what you want oh they, my gosh the four-year-old tells you what they want i mean like everybody's very I opinionated mean, my four-year-old is the boss of me too <laughs> i feel you um yeah I, yeah <laughs> oh man he is a spitfire and he has got loads of personality and <laughs> he definitely bosses us all around <laughs> So let me ask you a question, Nicole. After your family grew so quickly, something happened in 2020 that affected all of us. And, you know, I was like, the whole world was in a panic and all of our lives changed probably forever. I don't think any of us will ever look at Germex the same. (laughs) All of this happened. And I can't imagine how this was for you because I know how it was for me. And I had been a parent for years and I also was not a single parent. So can you tell me how this was for you when the world shut down and you had just recently become a mom of how many did you have at that time? I had two and then I had taken another foster baby. So I had three. So you had three and at least one of them had some special needs. Yes. parent at this point for six weeks six weeks and then the world shut down and the world shut down and you had them full-time and i had them full-time all right how did and that e-learning. look and you were e-learning oh yeah yeah okay. just good good just, times. i just want to clarify yeah it was chaos it was trial by fire for lack of a better expression kids went on spring break we were gonna go to disney world the world shut down they never went back to school again this whole e-learning thing came about and i'm like i don't have computers. I had everything that they needed for their rooms and all that stuff. I didn't have a bunch of extra school supplies or any idea what this e-learning thing was going to look like. And I was still working and I was trying to learn how to e-learn so I could teach them how to e-learn and still work. And it was really, really, really hard, really hard. Like, I don't even know if I have words for it. There were lots of therapy appointments um, that then all turned to to telehealth. Which meant you had to do them? Yes. Which meant now that I was doing the therapist's work while they were directing me, Amazon was delivering to my house multiple times a day so I could like get all the tools that I needed for the therapy appointments and for the e-learning and for the school. One of the things that sticks out for me is like we couldn't figure out where the kids were going to do school at. At this point, I was like, I'm not giving up my loft. That's my office. (laughs) And that quickly changed within like a weekend. I'm like, this isn't going to work. So I like rearranged my bedroom. So there's a lot of furniture rearranging also during this time. And we would move like into my entryway. We thought that was a good place. And like that didn't work. And then we were upstairs and like that didn't work because then we were up and down the stairs all day long. And that was difficult. And then finally we were like, well, the dining room table is now just school. And thankfully I had my mother who was incredibly supportive and she was there every single day. And she took on the incredibly arduous task of teaching not only my kids, but my nephew and 
helping with all the things. Wow. All the things. <laughs> there were a lot of things. There were a lot of things. Because it wasn't like, I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to set them up on their computer and they'll be good. But it was like every two minutes they were like, they would run into me and be, and be like, my teacher needs, or I need to do, or I don't understand. And it really wasn't like, okay, as long as you have the the technology to connect your hands off, like I, I had to be very hands on and I was running from one table to the next. Yeah. And, you know, and then their sounds were competing with each other and the teachers yes. were saying, hey, I can hear your other class, your <clears throat> sister's class in the background. So I had to separate them. I mean, it was it was a lot. And I can't imagine having going through that as a new mom <laughs> working full time. I mean, it was hard. I mean, not to mention the fact that, like, there's no toilet paper there's no paper <laughs> towels and now you're all home 24 7 you can't buy desks anywhere they I, don't exist <laughs> you can't find chairs like it was it was definitely interesting it was it, yeah. like it was the most ridiculous thing ever like the the toilet and especially like you would go somewhere and there would be like a quota on how much toilet paper you can get if you found somewhere with toilet paper and it was like a roll and I'm like, one roll? Okay, first of all, I've gotten like eight or nine kids. I don't remember at the time. Three of them are girls who use a whole roll every time they go to the bathroom. <laughs> like, one roll isn't going to last a day in my house. Right. And like, I feel like that should have been considered. How many kids are in your house before you say one roll? Like, when you can find toilet paper once a week. So, needless to say, we had to adopt the European um, way. And I told the kids, I'm like, listen, you gotta stop using too much toilet paper, or, like, we're, we're gonna run out, and you're gonna be in the backyard, and I'm gonna have to hose your butts down. And if you don't want your butts hosed down in the backyard, like, limit the amount of toilet paper. So I think, you know, between, like, scaring them with having to get naked in the backyard <laughs> with a hose, <laughs> and uh, adopting the European way, which actually all of the, I, I just had three girls reunify and one of them, you know, she calls me, she's like, I'm really upset because I don't have a bidet at my mom's house. Like she needs a bidet. I can't do this. Yeah. E-learning was a nightmare. There was one day that I was standing in the kitchen listening and I could hear all three teachers, all three kids. And I wrote down every insane thing that was absolutely unbelievable that had happened within about 15 minutes and I filled up like an entire piece of paper and I still have it but looking at it makes me hyperventilate yeah. so I don't read it but it was like not even believable stuff that either kids said teachers said that yeah. happened like go get your mom because all I can see is your ceiling put your pants on I mean just like <laughs> I mean the most ridiculous stuff you one of my favorite thing, and this was actually the night this was like an hour before my brother passed away last year. I know you remember the meme I sent you. I don't know if you know this. My brother passed away like right after COVID started. I didn't um, know that. And it was like a shock. Like he called me and he was he was feeling weird and shaky. He, what he was describing to me sounded like a panic attack, but it also sounded a little different. Um, and, you know, people in my family have had panic attacks. So I was trying to tell him like, if it's that, this is what you feel. But that doesn't sound like what you're having, I feel like you need to go to the hospital. And he's like, I'm not going to the hospital. That's where people get COVID. And then I got a call the next morning that he had passed away. That night, though, right before, like after I got off the phone with him, but before, you know, the morning when I found out that he had passed away, I read this meme on something. It was this woman telling the story. Her son was in a class and she walked in the room and she had that big heavy Costco towel on and yes. it fell and she was like buck naked. And then <laughs> the whole class saw her and it like it just went on and on and I laughed so hard I like peed myself. That was like one of the hardest weeks of my life for sure. 
And um, I kept going back to that meme because I wasn't able to laugh anymore when I read it, but it kind of brought me, like it distracted me a little bit. And brought you back so to the that, place right before everything in your life changed. There you go. Okay. <laughs> I knew I needed some therapy today. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so it was that meme I remember very clearly because I read it over and over so many times. It's been a crazy year and a half. So crazy. Crazy for you too. So scary. Speaking, <laughs> speaking of which... Nicole. Yes. You have gone through an experience that I wouldn't wish on anyone in your first year of fostering. But, um, and I will tell you that before I ever met you as a foster mom, I read a newspaper article about you. And when I read it at the time, the only thing I knew was what I read in the paper. And I was like, oh, this is so weird. It sounds like something nefarious is going on, you know? I'm like, I wonder what actually happened. And then I forgot about it, as people do, and went on with my life. When I met you and realized that you were that the person that the article is referring to, I was like, okay, I just met this woman. I feel a certain way about her. And now I feel like I need to figure out what really happened because <laughs> there's like, there's, this is something does not matching up. And and one of the things that was shocking was that in this newspaper article, you're, you were named your full name. And as foster parents, like we're afforded a certain num- amount of confidentiality, not just to keep ourselves safe, but to keep all of the kids in our home safe. When when I realized it was you, and I looked back at the article that night, I saw it in a very different way, um, and uh, felt pretty crappy about myself for having th- like assumed anything about somebody that I've never met. And and now that I'd met you, the first thing I noticed was, oh my gosh, they put her full name in it. Like there were a number of other details in it that were you know concerning. The article implied that you were you had used some back channel to uh, rip a child away from his bonded placement it uh, it definitely um, made a lot of assumptions so um, I know that you haven't been able to speak about this publicly I have not the case has been open and you've been you know deposed a number of times about it and And I have followed every single rule yes that we are supposed to follow as foster parents every single confidentiality has been kept and between my job or sitting on the bar grievance committee or any of the other number of things that I do guardian ad litem I hold myself to a fairly high ethical and moral standard and so I have not been able to speak and I have been quiet. Right. And I feel like your silence is not only incredibly appropriate as a foster parent and as someone who's aware at all in the legal field, because, you know, all of us know, like, we can't talk about our foster placements. We can't talk about our pending adoptions, especially publicly, especially to the media. You know, your story has been told by so many other people that, you know, I feel like you have the right also to share your experience and maybe clear up some of the confusion that people like me who were casting judgment on you without (laughs) knowing you at all. And now that I know you, like, I'm like, oh, gosh, I feel like a jerk now that I ever thought something nefarious was going on. But that's what the article led me to believe. Article, that's the way it was written. That's what was put out there. I mean, I couldn't really do anything about it. The media loves to hate the system on DCF, on judges on foster parents yes it's something that the media loves to do and in this situation it's so inappropriate 
because I had the best experience with DCF and with licensing. And I have nothing bad to say. And I hate every time I see this horrible article or news story that cycles through the news. I think we all know that the system can be improved and that it is broken. But the people that are working in it or the people that I have come across and that I have worked with are incredible. They've been supportive. They were the only people I could talk to. Mm -hmm. These people that I didn't know that work for the system are the people that became my supports Mm -hmm. because they were the only ones I could talk to. (laughs) They probably didn't want to hear me venting or upset um, but they were so supportive there was a few people that were incredibly supportive I mean she can't possibly be talking about red <laughs> definitely not talking definitely about red <laughs> and I don't even know if I can name them I wish I could um, and I don't know that I should without their permission um, but they so deserve to be recognized because they are incredible people and they were incredibly supportive. They were incredibly supportive to all sides too. They weren't just taking my side or anything like that. They were so appropriate and so professional. And I wish the media would portray that. Well, it's unfortunate that, you know, because everybody has to be confidential, that the people that are probably on the more ethical side of things aren't going to have their story heard. They're the Mm -hmm. silent ones. Yeah. Yeah. I think that one of the really important things in child welfare is that it's important to have lots of different voices because if we just had one voice, it probably wouldn't be the best thing for the child. And so it's good that, you know, the people involved were supportive to everybody involved because I'm sure that sometimes my voice is wildly incorrect. I'm sure sometimes I'm making an incorrect assumption, which is why I'm glad there are lots of other people involved. I'm sure it's like every, checks and balances. We, have like we all have. have our own perspective, but when you bring all the voices together, exactly, then we can get closer to the We truth. need each other. It really has to be a team collaborative effort. I work that way professionally. It's really the only way to work. What can you share with us about what happened? I was matched during PPT. So just to be clear for people in other areas who might use different programs or people who aren't foster parents, PPT is the training program that foster parents must complete before becoming foster parents. So you were in the foster parent class and yes. they asked you about to, to accept a placement. Yes. The conversation began there regarding a sibling set And I have a completely open uh, fostering profile. So when you begin fostering, you can kind of set parameters around the ages um, of the children and and many other aspects. Some of them a little less appropriate, in my opinion. (laughs) Some of them incredibly inappropriate. But nevertheless, you can set those parameters. I had no parameters. My only parameter was no children with animal abuse because I had dogs in my home who are older and um, that was kind of my only no-no. So I was approached. Ultimately, two of the siblings of the three siblings that moved into my home and I was told that the third would be moving in because there's always a push to keep siblings together in care and to reunite siblings in the same home, if at all possible. And I was willing to do that. I thought the two would move in and then the other one would move in within a week or two. The siblings thought that as well. And it was really hard for them to realize that their brother wasn't 
moving in just yet. At this point, how old were they? Six and seven. She might have been five, almost six. But they knew their brother. One of the biggest things I want to clear up from that article is that they absolutely knew each other. Not only did they know each other, they lived together for 10 months. And then for reasons, things that happened in the various homes, they were moved. There was a space issue. Basically, there was nothing nefarious about it. I don't want that to be perceived as nefarious. Um, There was a space issue (laughs) in that home. Then they were no longer living together for 10 or 11 months. They live together. And so the older two had their baby brother. I'm sorry to interrupt. How old is the youngest child? He is four now. Okay. So a quarter of his life, he was placed with them. Yes. He was placed with them upon coming into care at two months Mm -hmm. and then left at a year. So yes, from then, they didn't have a lot of consistent contact for about a year. And then there was more contact Um, more frequently, but it was still inconsistent. Visits were inconsistent. They missed their brother. They didn't know why their brother left. They weren't told that he was leaving. So there was a lot of trauma around him leaving. And so the fact that they were going to be able to be with him and live with him, it was like, especially my oldest one, that became his focus and his drive and his everything. He wanted his family back. It was his family. It is his family. Siblings belong to each other. Siblings belong to each other. I've seen kids come into care where... Um, there's an older, especially brother, they will sit there and ask you over and over, I need to find my brother, I need to find my brother, I need to find my brother. My teen girl had a younger brother as well. It was like a a consistent verbalization of hers. I need to find my brother. I I just need to talk to him on the phone. I need my brother. I need my brother. When two kids are both in foster care in the same system, under the same circuit, how how is it that they're not able to find each other? I, I don't know how that happens yeah. so often. How but dare we? Yeah, we suck. <laughs> Unless, I mean, there are times when we have to, but if we can keep them together, we yes. owe it to these kids. They have the right to one another. And as you both know, I mean, I'm like preaching to the choir. These are the longest relationships we have. Like long after we're gone, right. these kids have each other. They're 80, 90 years old. Yes. You're waiting for this child to come to your house. Yes. You're two that you have are anxious they're eager to make it happen what what it what goes next then i find out that we have to have something called the sibling separation staffing had no idea what that was or why we were having it or what was going on it's some sort of a procedure that had to occur for multiple reasons essentially this staffing had to occur to determine whether the children could be adopted separately. They hadn't been legally separated as siblings or administratively separated as siblings within the system. After a child has been in a placement for a certain amount of time, it kind of triggers this um, sibling separation staffing to occur. And there are other siblings in this case as well. It was more complex than just the three. Uh, The committee, it's an independent committee uh, made up of guardian ad litem, DCF, and it's all independent there, a case management, but it's nobody that's associated with the kids and their case on a day-to-day basis. That committee ruled that these siblings could not be separated, meaning they must be adopted altogether. They could not be adopted separately. So from there, I thought, now he's going to move, right? Not so much. (laughs) Not so much. From there, uh, we had... 
a court hearing wherein we all asked guardian ad litem program, case management organization or state attorney um, and myself made a request um, for the three siblings to have a spring break visit that would last for an extended period of time. The judge ordered that and then the siblings were allowed in my home all together for six days. That separation at the end of spring break was terrible. They were all crying. They were all screaming. Nobody wanted to leave each other of the three. It was the most amount of time they had spent with each each other in such a long time. It was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking. I have no other words for it. At that point, I asked for video calls. Now, at this point, the world had shut down, literally. The world had shut down. I think the only thing open were grocery stores (laughs) and pharmacies. There were video visits that were put in place. The Florida Supreme Court entered orders kind of dictating um, multiple things within the court system. And one of the things that they ordered had to do with dependency and video visits were to take place in lieu of in-person visits because of the pandemic and to keep everybody healthy and safe. Um, At that point, we had one phone call. No more contact was allowed. So at that point, I had to reach out to case management go to the state attorney, and we had to get a court order for visits specifically to occur, video visits to occur in this case, even though the Supreme Court had already put an order out ordering it. We had a court date. All of a sudden, there was an agreement for video visits, and there was communication stating that there must have been a misunderstanding. Uh, Meanwhile, I had documented everything in writing. I had every text message, email, every communication um, requesting visits that were consistent. But there was a communication that stated there must have been some misunderstanding. You know, I don't, I, we definitely can have video visits, no problem. Um, From there, case management got involved and there was a schedule put in place um, for video visits. I don't think that all of them in the beginning were supervised. I was having some major concerns about what was occurring on these visits. And so the visits then became supervised by case management at my insistence and request. So they continued to be supervised by someone, a guardian ad litem, case management, every single visit um, to ensure that they were occurring appropriately. Motions were filed in court, motions to intervene, which foster parents do not have the right to do. Because we're not parties to the case, right? Correct. We are not parties to the case. We are participants. And that doesn't mean that we don't have a voice. That doesn't mean that we cannot speak. It is the biggest mis- misnomer for me in the system. We do have a voice and we have a voice by working as a collaborative team Mm -hmm. with the guardian ad litem, with case management, Mm -hmm. with therapeutic interventions. They are our voice. Our communications with them are our voice. And if you work as a team, you have a voice. It may not physically be your voice that is spoken, but you have a voice. Um, There were motions that were filed to intervene that did not happen. That was shut down again because we are participants, not parties. We don't even have the right to file the motion to intervene. Right. Technically. That's why I, I was confused because that's not something that I've. There's legal maneuvering that people use, like opening up a case outside of the dependency case. So yeah. now we're falling under a case number that is no longer a dependency case. Um, so there's various legal maneuvers that people use to try to get these things uh-huh. to occur under. However, when you file a case like that, when there is an open case, 
in the court system, you have to file something saying that there is a related case within the jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. And so it triggers the clerk to let the judge know that now there's this related case that is filed. So typically these cases are then heard in front of the same judge. And now this happens across the board, not just in dependency. Mm -hmm. Um, It happens across the board in various court cases. When that motion happened, then there became opposition to the motion for placement, which were filed. Foster parents do have the right to be heard at at those hearings. So when those motions are filed and there is a hearing, foster parents have a right to be heard and the judges will absolutely hear you out. Who's filing those motions, though? So the state is filing the motion to change. The assistant state attorney files a motion saying someone is opposing this? Not that they're opposing this. Files that they're going to change placement. Okay. Right. So they're changing placement. It may fall under the statute that because a child has been in a certain placement for a certain amount of time, then that triggers you have to follow that. Child is placed here for X amount of time means we must file and make sure there's no opposition. Now, the only opposition there really could be is if there was a guardian ad litem who is a party to the case or, you know, case management or state attorney who represents them, who is a party to the case. But nobody else has the option to intervene there. But foster parents do have a voice and are allowed to speak at these hearings and they can, you know, say that they don't agree with it or and here are the reasons why they don't agree with it. This is all happening. These hearings are coming up and then the articles are written <laughs> and as if court isn't stressful enough right there's your name across news articles all over the place but how did the media even find out i mean i have my suspicions but we don't know for sure i don't know for sure so i could speculate but i don't think that that is productive productive right okay. um i don't know for sure the media is alerted so i just want to like step in and mention that i read the articles and there are some things that the articles talked about that I want to give you a chance to discuss. Until this point, you haven't really talked about these things due to confidentiality and the legal state of your kids' cases. So the articles discussed a few things in particular. First of all, they talked about how you have a history of working closely with the child welfare system, both as a guardian ad litem and having close connections with the child welfare system and how it was almost kind of like a nefarious thing. Talked about how you were single, that you owned your own home in Pasco County. Even mentioned the city she lives in. Mentioned the city, mentioned your full name. Yeah. Which is so not kosher for a foster parent. When we're in court, often we're not even supposed to be referred to as our any part of our name, but the caregiver or the foster Foster parent. parent. And it said that you were unemployed. Um, The article said that the child in question, which was the youngest child, was bonded to another person, the foster parent at the time, completely. The children, meaning the youngest child and the two other kids, that they didn't know each other, that the youngest child was born years after the two older kids, and that that's why they didn't know each other, that they didn't have a relationship. And so can you speak to any of those things? All of those things. <laughs> Let's hear it. Okay, so your first point, I am a guardian ad litem. The one quote that I gave the newspaper was that I proudly served as a guardian ad litem. I still do. It gave me zero connections. We are in different circuits. I am a guardian ad litem in C13, which is in Hillsborough County. I am a foster parent in C6, which is made up of Pasco and Pinellas. I knew no one here 
in this area. And you're a guardian ad litem volunteer, right? That is correct. So not a paid employee. So you don't, you know, I know a lot of guardian ad litem volunteers and they don't even know the other guardian ad litem volunteers, let alone like across circuits. I know them in the same county. Yes. They don't I know, know each other. No, I know a handful of them simply because we've been sitting at round table meetings together. If not for that, I wouldn't know them at all. We work independently. We work on our cases or volunteer and work on our cases. I don't know the other volunteers. Even um, even in that circuit, even let in alone my in circuit. a different circuit. Right, let alone in a different circuit. <laughs> so your close connections didn't give you any clout? Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. The only thing that the Guardian Ad Litem program gave, program gave me is education, uh-huh. trauma-informed knowledge experience in the system experience in the system and experience advocating for children and that's it and all of those are very positive things that we should all hope to have more of right now you changed jobs somewhere in the middle of this i did so i mean like i'm sure and i we all know millions of other people i mean covid hit and i was laid off just like many other people i had been at my firm for a long time and it happened what i couldn't speak to then and I what I wasn't willing to speak to was that I had another job immediately and I was questioned profusely about this job and about this place and to which I answered I am a licensed foster parent in good standing and licensing requires us to fill out financial affidavits and they require proof of our financial standing. And there are very strict sets of rules around those things. Um, But also to presume that someone who's a foster parent or an adoptive parent will never change jobs or never get laid off is like kind of ridiculous. I mean, we even spoke on the podcast. The morning after we received our first foster placement, which was like we got licensed while the kids were on their way to our house and we still had two classes left they were waiting to move the kids on that day for the time where they got the call saying that our license was finally official official and then the next morning jack daddy goes to work and comes home with this look on his face that i will never forget and he had been laid off he was able to get a new job you know he received a severance that loss of job never affected us financially because we were rece- we were continuing to receive income from his job until he started receiving income from his new job. You know, as far as foster care is concerned, you know, it doesn't matter if you change jobs as long as you demonstrate that you have the financial stability, you're fine. So for this to even be brought into question, the information was private. It was private. It was private. And private. It, it also presumes that nobody has a savings account. Or, right. You know, like It presumes so much. It really kind of, frankly, disgusts me about this particular reporter um, to presume such things. How do you not give someone the benefit of the doubt or just the possibility that there are other things out there? It was pretty disgusting. Well, the same reporter posted a picture of the child in the article. So the child didn't have privacy either that is correct yeah with all the details given 
in the article and having uh, granted it was the back of the kid but listen if i saw the back of my kid in a picture i would know it was the back of my kid yeah completely took away your confidentiality the child's confidentiality the siblings confidentiality like that article like blows my mind yes it took so much away so the article talked about the kids that there was a big age difference between the kids can you and that they didn't have a relationship there was no relationship yeah which is probably the thing that aggravates me the most about the article because because it is so untrue they have a relationship they live together from the time the youngest was sheltered until he was a year old it's foster care so there were times where visits were not consistent but they know each other they had visits they had visits with biological family there were relationships with biological family Um, extended family, biological extended family, and siblings that were occurring. They knew that this was their brother. He knew that these were his siblings. But even if they didn't have a relationship, and even if they hadn't lived together, they're siblings. They have the right to have that opportunity. They do. And I know people who grew up in foster care, and here they are as adults, and they don't have relationships with their siblings because that wasn't afforded to them while they were in that process. So the fact that it's hard to get adoptive homes for sibling groups, it's hard to have one person say, yeah, you know what, I'll take take all three Uh of them. Um, So to have that, it's just kind of like protect this with your life and and support this and honor this and let these kids have each other. Yes. And so to for this article to come out and try and, you know, dispute that, oh, they, you know, they hadn't lived together or what have you, that it takes a lot away. They tried to use the media as a tactic to persuade public opinion which would maybe then in turn persuade the court. Mm-hmm. How did that I work believe. out? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the kids are together. So and real quickly, what's the age difference between the youngest and the other two? Um, they are, there's a three year age difference between the youngest and the middle. And then a five year age difference oh. between the youngest and the oldest. That That's are in ex- the, home. the exact age difference between mine. And I don't think that's very far at all. No. The boys wrestle relentlessly <laughs> in the yeah. home. I mean, they are so happy to be together. They constantly say, especially the little one, man, he is so family focused. It is probably the one thing, the one piece of credit that I will give the other foster parent. She definitely instilled family and taught to bond and attach because if she had not given him that gift he would not have been able to move on and and bond and attach so quickly and and move on with really no problems at all that's fantastic so the three siblings are together and they're doing well they're amazing nicole what was the catalyst that brought your four-year-olds home to you the motion to change placement because the parties to the case felt that it was in his best interest to be with his siblings. The prior foster parent wanted to keep the child, the youngest child, in her home without the siblings. Because of the length of time that he was in her home, the department couldn't move him 
without court intervention. So the state, then there was a motion that was filed and that motion ultimately led to an evidentiary hearing where testimony was given and the judge rendered his ruling and with that ruling had him coming to my home and reuniting with his siblings. And that's when the transition started. That's when the transition started. That was a year ago. That uh, prior foster parent was still trying. There was a, there was an application for adoption. So when there's an application for adoption, it has to be explored. And then that application for adoption um, was expanded to include all three children um, and not just the one child after. So after the he court moved, order. she said, OK, I'll take all three of them if I can have them back. Correct. OK. And just so everyone is clear, she was asked multiple times Mm -hmm. to put those siblings together. This wasn't a new question. This wasn't a new fact pattern. Mm -hmm. This was the case all along. Because in Florida, it's the goal all along for siblings to be together because siblings belong together more than they belong to anybody else. That is correct. Can you tell us what the law says? So the law says that any biological relationship is the relationship that should be explored when a child is in care. Now, that could look like a parent, an aunt, you know, an uncle, a cousin, some other biological connection. But if there are siblings in care, they are to be placed together at all costs. Now, that does not mean at the cost of the child's mental health or safety, okay? When it is safe, the children should be together. And in this case, there were zero safety concerns where the children should have not been together. They were simply not together because there was no more room in the foster home where they were initially placed together. Which is just tragic. I mean, we talk about all the time, we just desperately need more foster homes. Yes. I mean, and this is simply because there are rules that at the age of one, a child can no longer sleep in a crib Mm -hmm. in a foster parent's room. Yeah. And that home was full. So. Oh my gosh. Right. And I don't know what the circumstances are surrounding that. I mean, they might have really, really been full. Who knows? Right. I I don't know. Um, But that is why they weren't together. I'm so glad you're on the other side of this. Oh, my God. Me, too. (laughs) (laughs) Me, too. (laughs) It's my understanding, Nicole, that there was some legislation put forward to try and prevent this situation from happening again, where um, siblings were trying to be put together over removing a child from a bonded home. Uh, Can you tell us more about that? State bill. Yes, it's uh, Senate Bill 80, and I think it's a Senate bill, it's SB 80. And that bill was starting to be written during the court proceeding because they brought it up. You know, that it was happening and it was in legislature and they were working on it and there were iterations of this bill. Um, It has recently been passed, but that bill has been through so many rewrites and iterations that the goal of removing that sibling relationship 
on a layer of importance ultimately is still in the bill. That sibling relationship still exists. Siblings still take priority. Siblings still take priority. Now, there are some things that give foster parents voices in a certain way. Um, with that bill, and I'm sure uh, several foster parents are rejoicing over that. Oh, yeah. I personally don't feel that it's necessary because I know how to use my voice, and I don't need to use my physical voice to use my voice. And so I don't believe it's necessary. I believe it's going to cause a lot of issues and a lot more delays in permanency because people are going to utilize it for reasons that may not be in the child's manifest best interest. But at the end of the day, these siblings are together. And with that bill in place, I still believe they would still be together. I mean, that is always the best interest of the child for them to be with siblings. You know, there's something else that's been brought up multiple times that no transition occurred. And that is the biggest lie And nobody would know this, but I think it needs to be known. There was a transition. It lasted for an entire month after he moved into my home. There was a plan. It was followed. There were therapists involved. And therapists were monitoring each and every visit that occurred between the child and the foster parent. And the therapist determined when the visits were no longer therapeutic for him. Mm -hmm. I did not make that decision. I was not allowed to make that decision. It was in the hands of the therapists. The day that the court ordered he moved to my home, I called my therapist and I had him ready and he was available immediately to immediately begin working with the child and he was already working with the siblings. There was a long transition. It occurred. It was therapeutically driven. And it was important that there was a transition for him because he was in that home for a time period. Mm -hmm. That's really, really amazing. And because that's a big difference between no transition. Huge difference. Often there really is no transition. Yeah, very often. That's a really healthy transition. I think so. I think so. And and, I mean, the bottom line here is you were leaning onto the experience of therapists. Yes. You were following their direction. You were following case management's direction. You were following license license direction. There was nothing nefarious going on. No. You were just, you were asked to take a sibling group of three. You said yes, and you proceeded. That's it. And that resulted (laughs) in this article defaming you, sharing all this private confidential information. I just feel like it's the article. It's the comments below the article. Yeah, I have community. I have seen comments on Facebook even from various foster parents talking about this specific case. And, you know, whereas some parties feel like they have all the information about it. And nobody can have all, you can't have all the information. The other foster parent can't have all the information. Therapists can't have all all the information. That's what we were talking about before. Mm. You need all the voices to to show the full perspective and the full picture. Right. And you have to operate within your role, which is something that you did. Like when you said the therapist has to make that call. Yeah. You have to operate within your role. Like, you know, I feel like I'm often asked to make decisions that only a CPI can 
make or the only usually CPI, you know, something like that. You have to operate within your role. Yes. And it's really, really unwise to move outside your role because not only is it unhealthy, but it's a boundary issue. Yeah. And it's really wise and other people need to really take heed to that advice because you it, it, it brings stability to your own home. And I feel like it's you're operating within your own integrity to say, this is my role. and I'm going to stay in it. So if I'm being asked, is this child ready? I'm going to defer to the person who knows best. Yes, it was not for me to decide. It wasn't. I mean, there were points of frustration where maybe I wanted to decide one way or the other, but it wasn't for me to decide. I follow the guiding principle of the manifest best interest of the child, regardless of what I want, despite what I want. I, what I want or feel regarding that doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is what is best for the child, and it is not my place in that particular lane to make that call. And I didn't make the call. Well, I'm just kind of blown away that, um, you know, this is your first year of being a foster parent. <laughs> this is your experience. And instead of running away screaming, like 98% of the people would have done, mm-hmm. you fought for what you felt was the best interest of these children. You are continuing to foster. You are continuing to take placements and help and advocate for other kids. And uh, I just don't know a lot of people like you. Thanks. <laughs> Can you tell you know, me like, so you have had really great boundaries during this whole process. And that's something that I really admire about you. Can you tell me about some of the boundaries that you have that have helped keep your family safe? Some of the boundaries that have been put in place are with communication, um, with the team, with Me knowing my role and knowing my place, my professional career is very much a hierarchy Mm -hmm. and I very much know where my place is. And this is no different. There is a hierarchy. Mm -hmm. I play a role within this hierarchy and I know my place. And by staying in my place and staying in my lane, that doesn't mean that I don't advocate. That doesn't mean that I don't use my voice. I have a voice and I use it. So not being able to use my voice during this time was really hard. I bet. I am incredibly outgoing Mm -hmm. and outspoken and not speaking was incredibly difficult, but it was what was safe that is what kept my kids safe. Mm -hmm. So I did it. And if I thought for one second that it wasn't safe at this point, I wouldn't be sitting here speaking today either. It is safe now Mm -hmm. because these kids are my kids now. Mm -hmm. And after 18 months of a long, hard, arduous fight, they're my kids and I can speak Mm -hmm. and I won't be silenced any longer because I was silenced for so long with so many things that were so untrue. And I mean, if I'm just being honest, it really sucked. (laughs) I don't really have an eloquent way to put that. Yeah, no, it's not needed. I mean, you know, one thing that I really, and I'm not perfect, but one thing I really try with the kids is to not have conversations in front of them. And I mean, 
Jack and I have bunches of kids running around. <laughs> so we know it's sometimes difficult to have conversations outside of their purview. Indeed. So I found creative ways to do that. <laughs> yes. Or conversations Hiding that are occurring. Like, right. They're occurring out on the front porch. Right, right, right. Or I'm like speaking Spanglish to some people that know. Spelling half the words. Gosh, that's arduous. Right. But then then the older ones are yeah. spelling oh, now. Gosh. So I'm like. Spellers. <laughs> yeah. <all> <laughs> The worst. <laughs> I know it, it was pretty rough when I spelled something one day. It wasn't, you know, anything bad or anything. <laughs> and he was like, did you just spell? And I was like, that's it. So I was talking to my over. sister. I'm like, my that's life it. is over. <laughs> that school is gone. Um, so being very careful to not let my feelings, my emotions, my experience spill onto them. Now, my oldest one is very, very, very sensitive to my moods. And I've kind of been paying attention to this over time. So I have to be really, really careful <laughs> to be very kind of even keel. Again, I'm not perfect. If I'm snappy or if I'm short, you know, or even if I am just somber or if I'm feeling sad. Mm-hmm which is all okay. Right. And, you know, while I'm careful because they're so sensitive, I also feel like it's very important. I have to show them that I have emotions. Mm-hmm. I can't let them think that this is easy or that this has been easy or that nothing is going on, man, especially the nine-year-old. Yes. He knew stuff was going on. Yeah. And sometimes it was really hard for him and he would get really upset knowing that there, there were things that were going on, but I couldn't tell him about it. And so my answer would always be, you are right. There is stuff going on. It's just stuff that I'm not allowed to talk about. It's such a beautiful picture of protective parenting. <laughs> it's just, like, he deserved that. Yeah, he deserved to be acknowledged that he, he, his, what he was seeing was acknowledged. And then me simply saying, yes, uh-huh. but I can't tell you what it is. Like I see you, but you get to be a kid. Yes. And I get to be the mom. Yes. I like it. Yes. You know? And you don't have to deal with the hard things, mm-hmm. which kind of goes back to the whole reason I became a foster parent. And like, you don't have to be hyper vigilant. <laughs> right. Go play. Go Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Oh boy, yeah. <laughs> but they are, man. I know. Because of all their experiences mm-hmm. and the trauma, and yeah. it, it, it makes them very anxious. Mm-hmm. So I've had to be careful of kind of keeping, I mean, even those boundaries within my relationship with him, not keeping him out, but saying, yes, I am sad, or yes, like I am really, really, really angry today has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with your brother because that was the problem. You know, everybody sees this article and sees the little boy. They have no idea what the other two kids went through. I was the one who lived through that. They have no idea the pain that those little kids went through and they were already traumatized. Every day they asked for their brother. Every day they wanted him. Every day they asked if he was safe. They didn't know. And there was two months where I couldn't answer them because I had no contact. They were not afforded the simple humanity of knowing that their sibling was safe. And this is at a time where, like, the world wasn't safe. Right. Yeah. And at a time where, like, let's be honest, we're all still getting to know each other. <laughs> <laughs> they hadn't been 
in my house yeah. that long. I mean, oh my god! If you being honest, so there's the anxiety of being in a new place, or you know, still kind of figuring everyone out and having that relationship. Now, you know, a piece of their heart is now there's no longer communication with. Nobody saw them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And their they just, side. The, 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 when you see the article, you just see this foster mom and her sad face holding this, this child, right? Yes. But as what you were saying in the very beginning, you knew that you could be the one to hold pain Mm -hmm. after you lose the attachment when they're reunified that's why we do fostering is to reunify them yes and you know there are times obviously both of us have experienced where we've been able to adopt our placements but that's not what fostering is no it's not every child that comes to your house whether it's an adoptive placement or a foster placement or a temporary placement we all know that anything can happen on any day. And no matter who tells you, can I tell you how many kids I have been told like, oh, they're going to be adoptable or, oh, would you consider adopting them? I feel like there's not a kid that comes through anybody's home that stays for any period of time where someone isn't telling you, oh, this one might be, you know, a longer term or this one might be like, you don't know. Even once a child is TPR'd, you don't know that that you're the adoptive placement for no. them. That's not there's even family finding. There's These family things finding. that are in place. Even outside of family finding, there might be other siblings somewhere. Right. Um, there's so many uh, there might be a friend of the family you know so to get so worked up over a placement just because somebody had told you that you could fill out an adoption form for them right. is a little and I don't, know, I don't feel comfortable with that oftentimes these relatives or non-relatives that know the family come forward post tpr uh-huh. right because they are not comfortable uh-huh. being Dealing involved with, with the bio parents or the so family true. so you're right you never know you don't know yeah i held my breath every step of the way <laughs> until I was in the courtroom in front of Judge Stearns. Like, I didn't even know they were doing in-person hearings. You got an in-person adoption hearing? I special requested the this judge. Incredible. And the in-person. And it was awesome. There was no limitation to how many people were there. Oh, wow. Everyone was represented. Licensing, the kids' therapists, my close COVID bubble, prior state attorney. Wow. Guardian ad litem, guardian ad litem, uh, guardian ad litem cam, guardian ad litem attorney. It was awesome. It was awesome. It was, <laughs> it was fantastic. I mean, I feel like any adoption is a magical moment, right? Yes. Like I, th- I can't even talk about some of them cause I'll just cry, but, <laughs> um, like th- to have gone through what you've gone through to get to this point. I just, I can't even imagine the, were you um, in attendance when um, my second foster care adoption happened? I was very ill. They asked me to speak to some points and I am so mortified when I watched the video. (laughs) It was a very emotional case. The moment I laid eyes on him, it was that I've known you for 5,000 years. I have always known you. You're part of me. Like our insides are meshed. Like (laughs) this is my son. And 
you know, that like to think back and when I get placements, I can't imagine thinking that of the placements. Like these are kids that I'm helping reunify with their families. But when I met that kid, it was like, it was like, Oh, there you are. There you are. And, um, I know the feeling well. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> so, so knowing, having that feeling about that child going through, what was it? Two and a half years. Of, are you talking about baby Jack? Yes. Baby. Jack. Okay. I was actually there for that. I thought you were talking about the other one, but, um, yeah, that was a really hard couple of years. It was because, um, it was, it was hard for a lot of reasons, but it was just the uncertainty, even though I had certainty and the fear even though I had confidence, you know, to get to that point in the courtroom when they're saying it's done, you don't ever have to worry about this kid being your kid anymore. Like he's yours. You can leave now. You don't have to have visits every so many weeks. You don't have oh to my have gosh. 10 different people asking you <laughs> questions. You don't have to submit every medical paperwork. Like that's just on you now. Like that. Um, I can't imagine what that must have been like for you after the insane experience of all this and on top of COVID. Like I the know. rest of us were like losing our minds over COVID. You were in the middle of like a media frenzy, becoming a mom for the first time. I mean, that's a lot. Yeah. And to get you through that, like, I don't know, I'm just kind of blown away by you. But what what were your supports? How who were those that supported you and that were really key to having you able to come through the other side because I'm telling you a lot of people would have run screaming (laughs) (laughs) there were so many so many the cam was a support Um, I found creative ways to make sure that we were still getting therapy in Um, the kids therapist was fantastic and he was still coming into my home he was a saving grace for me he I will always and forever be grateful for him. They are not seeing him now because, you know, sometimes it's just time to move on. But he brought them through it. Man, he got them to where they are and we wouldn't be where we are without him. Um, putting the kids in equine therapy, using that, utilizing that as a tool. And the person that does that for me, it's Emerald M Therapeutic Writing. And Miss Lisa is a complete and utter godsend. And her staff, they're amazing. Having them, having my sister, having my brother, having my parents, my sister-in-law, having my little nephew who would like always make me laugh (laughs) and say the craziest things or wiggle his teeth. And I hate, wait, what? Loose teeth. (laughs) I hate loose teeth. So he would like come up and be like, T.T. Cole. And he would like wiggle his tooth at me if like I was having like a hard moment or something. Case management, licensing, and then just doing it. Yeah. (laughs) And then just having. Do we share a licensing specialist too, right? We do. We do. She's pretty awesome, huh? She is. She's going to be in a couple weeks. Oh, is she? Oh, I love that. I saw her today, actually. (laughs) She's saving her visit for when she comes to record. (laughs) Ah. Um. And having actually um, somebody who was in licensing and is no longer in licensing became an incredibly close support and friend um, to me. Uh, Reconnecting with um, a high school friend who we had already reconnected and his wife. They're amazing. Being able to just be myself with my sister. And then something else that was so amazing and so unexpected is a trauma-informed therapist that I work with. She is, I don't even have words. She's beyond. 
amazing. I did not want her. I wanted nothing to do with her. <laughs> we've talked <laughs> that must about mean that. She was good. <laughs> yeah, I. We've talked about it because I didn't make the decision to have a therapist. It was requested, strongly suggested, requested, required. <laughs> um, um, through all of this, I didn't fight it, but I was very guarded. And we've we've talked about it. She was like, you were given off the vibe that like, I could be here, but you weren't saying shit. <laughs> and that's definitely me. <laughs> And that's definitely was my attitude. And I was very guarded. She came back every week. We would take the kids on walks or bike ride while we were doing it. And I mean, that just kind of shows you how great it, she is. It was never intruding. I'm not going to make this hard on you. What do you want to do? Why don't, why don't we, what do you want to do? Why don't we go for a walk? And I'm like, oh, we can do that. We can get out of the house during COVID <laughs> and walk while we talk. This is brilliant. <laughs> that was put in place by case management and um, the department. And when that was no longer uh, the department's responsibility, I had zero hesitation and I have continued working with her because these kids are working through trauma. I have to learn how to handle all of these situations. She is so helpful. I may have a broad idea of what to do, but she can give me an exact example of what I should do based on my specific situation. It sounds like we all need her. You all need her. I love her. She's amazing. I, when I talked to her earlier, I told her I was doing this. Um, I run everything by her. <laughs> And she's just amazing. And she's honest. And she calls me on my shit if there's shit to be called, you know. And I love it. It's She's incredibly supportive. So having all of those things and all of these people along the way are how I got through it. Finding other creative ways, getting how do I get all of the kids out of the house at the same time when there's kids that don't walk or can't ride bikes or whatever. I bought a bike trailer. I bought myself a bike. Put the littles in the bike trailer, put the big ones on the bike, and fingers crossed and hope for the best. <laughs> Can you give me a word that you think people would use to describe foster parents? Tough. How do you see the role of foster parents in child welfare? Necessary. Good foster parents. Yeah. Asterisk. We all get trauma fatigue from uh, the secondary trauma. Um, are there certain things that you do for self-care? First of all, I'm not afraid to cry because it's such a huge stress relief. Um, journaling, um, whether it's handwritten or typing, dancing in the living room with the kids, <laughs> like, I, you know, just random stuff or listening to certain types of music. What are the biggest struggles that you see in foster care right now? Not enough foster homes. I would say that's the biggest. And then not enough employees that are trained properly, kind of across the board. I'm not just talking about case management because I feel like <laughs> everybody dogs on right. just case management. But really, I mean, placement, they could use more help. You know, I feel like they could at times. You know, I think licensing kind of fluctuates with 
Mm-hmm. who they have there. So not just case management, kind of across the board. I mean, really more foster parents, but there's so much recruiting. And how do you really recruit more foster parents? I always hear about this a lot. And I'm like, there's nothing you can do. If people yeah, don't like, have a heart for it, if people don't want to do it, if people don't want to open it, their home up. There's, you're going you're gonna to get a heart for it by experiencing it, by right. knowing somebody like an organization coming and telling you this is why you should do this is rarely going to make someone completely change their life to bring strangers into their home right you know i always wonder about like those movies like instant family yeah i think that brought a lot of foster parents in but i kind of love that movie oh so i haven't even seen it but i wonder see it my kids watched that movie like a million times every day for like three or four months really yes and i was like are we are we are we are we done with this? Are we yeah. this yet? Do we understand? Do we know all the words to the movie now? Oh my gosh, I, I need to watch it, but I I often wonder if those movies like are the catalyst or if, if I think that one in particular increased a lot of awareness and I think uh-huh. a lot of people became foster parents because of it and I've got to tell you like I don't think I've seen many that were as realistic as that one I even there was a documentary on uh, something recently last year maybe the year before about foster care and I don't even think that documentary was as accurate really? as that movie Instant Family I you know when when you met the social workers I knew a social worker that was exactly like the one and one that was exactly <laughs> like the other and uh, really the, the different characters in the foster parent class I'm like dude this is spot on it's funny though because while the younger kids really enjoyed the movie my 16 year old doesn't really really isn't really interested is it triggering for him I think possibly yeah you know the other movie that was interesting and I think I saw this with you was the superhero movie that's like for kids oh Shazam, Shazam. I love that one we've seen that one a bunch have you seen Shazam no I don't you think should so see if that's I know what it is but I haven't seen it so I thought that one was really cute that was cute um, but I always wonder if that brings more you know foster parents to the table um, what do you think the community can do to prevent more kids from coming into foster care? I think people tend to turn a blind eye and don't want to be the one to make a call. And I think if a call is made sooner rather than later, early intervention and resources can be put into place like safe at home or mm-hmm. safety planning or things like that um, versus waiting until there's a kid wandering the streets at 2 a.m. So much and it's a crisis. That. And it's a crisis, right. I mean, I remember working at an elementary school when I was in high school, my senior year, and I remember a five-year-old disclosing something. And my colleague was, I was like, we're calling the abuse hotline. I mean, even at 17 years old, I knew what it was. This and we does were, not surprise me about yeah. that. <laughs> and we were calling and I didn't care what anybody else said. Yeah. She was like, oh no, we have to run it by our boss. And I'm like... Says who? Like, no, we're not. I'm calling and it's confidential and I don't care. And I will disclose. I will say I called because it was disclosed and it's going to be investigated, period. So I think if people weren't so scared Uh to intervene or call or turn a blind eye or whatever, I mean, it's none of my business. Yes, it drives me insane. I was driving on the way to Clearwater one day and there was a man walking an older man, and he was kind of stumbling, you know, grandparent age. I immediately picked up the phone and called 911 to report it. We're on highway. 16-year-old says, 
it's not our business. I said, that's somebody's father, grandfather, family. And what if he's an elderly, part of the elderly community that has Alzheimer's or dementia and there's a silver alert out that we just haven't seen. Right. We call period. Mm -hmm. You call, you care, you care about humans. I like it. (laughs) I do too. I think that's a great way to like, it kind of blankets the whole show because you have cared about these kids so much that it was about them and not you. It was never about me. And I just have to say, you know, I didn't have a foster situation when I was growing up. In fact, I didn't even know what foster care was when I was growing up. But like 18 months ago, we found out that we had a half brother. My three, my two siblings and I found out we had a half brother that um, lived within vicinity of us for the last 30 something years. Like, you know, now he lives very far away. But, you know, there were times in our lives where he lived very close to us. And because we weren't gifted with the information of, you know, his uh, existence, you know, I mean, we knew he existed, but we didn't know he was our his brother, identity. his identity. You know, we never knew, you know, he was there are times where he was in the same state or the neighboring state. And both he and my other brother were military and they were, you know, really close to each other. And finding out that we had another sibling was such a gift, but finding out that we lost almost 30 years with him, he's 32, it is like... There's so much grief yeah. because the way it makes you feel is that you have no value, that you're not worth it. So when you say this person is important and he has value and he's someone's dad, that's what you've done for these kids too. You said you have value. You kids belong to each other. You're important. And it's not just them. It's not just the three siblings. It's the 16 year old that's there. It's the 17 year old. It's the The eight month old, it's every child who comes into that home. The biggest lesson that I want to teach these kids is compassion and humanity. If I can teach them that, I have more than done my job. Teachers will educate them in ways that I cannot. College will educate them in ways that I cannot. Mm -hmm. I can teach them compassion and humanity, and I can teach them that through my actions and through what they see and through how I help people mm-hmm. because there may be these various kids that are in my home and there's the guardian ad litem kids but there's others mm-hmm. there's others that cross my path that I am like oh you want this I can make a few phone calls I can send a few emails I can close the gap and we can make it happen well and to that point you know I had heard a story about um, your 16 year old where he has a passion for gaming and yes. that's what he wants to do with his life <laughs> and that you like made it a mission to use that to connect with him yes and to encourage him scholastically as well yes can you tell us about that <laughs> I mean he seems like a really cool kid I love so him so much I would love to hear more about that I love him so much he is similar to how you were describing earlier just kind of that instant connection I don't know why he just was he he came to me as a night placement and I've never got him out of my mind he is in my home and we're going through that process um but gaming he loves gaming he loves to play video games and he was struggling with school and i was trying to encourage him and trying to come up with ways to encourage him and we had like 
reward charts and like all to do with gaming, you know, all kinds of stuff, right? Anything to encourage him. The one thing that I don't know how I was able to pull off or do was I reached out to his favorite YouTuber who has, let me get, let me see if I can get his number right. I think he's got right now, he's at like between nine and 10 million viewers. And at the time he had 8 million subscribers, viewers, whatever it's called on YouTube. And I'm like, how am I going to get a hold of this guy who like 9 million other people want to talk to? (laughs) At least. (laughs) So I went on every social media platform and private messaged him and didn't really think that would get his attention because that's what everybody does. So I Googled and Googled and Googled until I found... Using your investigative (laughs) skills. Yes. Until I found a business email for him. (laughs) And it said to only use the email for, I don't know, something not what I was emailing him for. (laughs) And I was like, eh, gonna do it anyways. So I emailed him. And he responded to me. And what I was asking him for was a conversation with my teen to help encourage him. And then kind of if he could give him a little bit of advice on kind of how he got into it. And so he wrote back and said, I will record a a video for him. Uh, customized video and send it to him. Which is actually probably better than the call right. because he could play it, it over and over right. and over. Right. So he responded and then I didn't get anything for like a week and I was like, hey, I appreciate this so much. What are you going to send the video? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, and I'm shocked that you followed up. <laughs> but he sent it to me like four hours later in the middle oh, of the night. Oh my gosh. And so I was you mean he doesn't like it up bright and early and go to bed at nine? <laughs> Shocker. Yeah. He um, sent me the video and I was so freaking pumped. And when I told my teen, he was kind of mad at me. So like the reaction was lackluster. Meanwhile, I'm like literally jumping and screaming that I got this freaking famous YouTube guy to like send a personal video. And he was like, hmm. Like, I got, like, not a lot of response. Oh, Anyways, my gosh. It's okay. Whatever. So then I showed it to him. And then when he saw it, he was like, can I see it again? Can you send it to me? Aww. And so it was super cool. <laughs> that is probably something that I feel super accomplished about as a foster parent. Other things, too. Just creative ways of connecting and figuring it out. I mean, I didn't know anything about these video games. Now I know things. I sit with him, probably not as much as he would like. I think he would like for me to sit and watch him more, which I endeavor to do sometimes. It's so hard. It's so hard. I'm with you. I know. I I get it. I'm like, oh God. I know. It's so hard. But now I find myself like, retaining the knowledge that he has given me about it. So like other people are talking about it. I'm like, oh yeah? What about blah blah? And you know, I'm able oh, to like wow. <laughs> he must think you're cool now though, right? I don't think he thinks I'm very cool. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he thinks I'm very cool. Really all my kids, but definitely my oldest son is very into video games. And uh one of the things that I really felt like was a positive experience for all my kids as we went on uh, a road trip this summer and we brought all I think at the time we were just seven kids right because the baby hadn't been born yet so the seven of us 
went on a road trip. We went to Georgia. We went to Tennessee. We did like, you know, cool, like waterfall stuff, whatever. Uh, the, the one night at our Airbnb, uh, so my son had brought a switch and, you know, the uh, device is required to plug it into the TV. And so I thought, um, you know, we've got kids from age two to 11 and, you know, sometimes the younger ones and the older ones don't connect as well. And sometimes, you know, to be honest, my 11 year old sometimes feels left out because there's a bigger age gap mm-hmm. and the, the the middle ones hang out and the little ones hang out. And he's like the coolest freaking kid on the planet. <laughs> but the other kids are like, I'd want to play with the baby doll over here. You know, right. <laughs> so uh, I thought it would be uh, something that could connect. Everybody would be to play Mario Kart because that's something even the two year old can kind of play. Right, right. So we went to Walmart up in Georgia and we got this big poster board and we made like, like, you know how they have, um, in, in basketball, those charts where, yeah. What are they called? Like final four kind of stuff. What? Like a, it's like a, and a, and a, and it goes to the end. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, like, it's like the final four charts. Yeah. Like yeah there's, four. there's another term. There Twelve. is. But I, I think it's the type of chart it is. Yeah, I don't know the name of it. Anyways, so we made this big poster board chart. We put everybody's names on it, and I talked a lot of game, but I was bumped out in the first round. And you know, every single kid was super engaged, and my son was like, he's still talking about that, and that was months ago. He's like, hey, you think we could do another one of those championships again? Obviously, he won, but he almost lost, and in that moment, I was dying. But you know, that was a way that we could connect with all our kids and get all of them to connect with each other. Yeah. And even though, well, to be honest, I kind of enjoy Mario Kart. I think it's kind of fun, you know? Yeah. Out of the games you could play, uh, you know, I might have preferred to catch up on something or scroll my Facebook feed, but taking the time to connect with them in a way that really excites them yes. was totally worth it. You know? Yeah. That we did something similar, not quite as PG. It was with. Uh, Mortal Kombat. Oh, wow. <laughs> that makes me feel way better about the serial killer. <laughs> and so I hadn't played Mortal Kombat since I was a kid. Right. And I was like, let's, you know, let's like play this. And so the 16 year old was talking all the smack. I had never touched a PS4 controller. <laughs> I haven't played since like there was a Sega Genesis or yeah. something like that, right? Like, it's a long old school Nintendo. Yeah, I had those two. And so we're playing. And he's like, you know, talking a whole bunch of game. And of course, he's kicking the little kids butts, but they're having the time of their life. Yeah. You know, even the four year old is playing, whatever. He's kicking their butts. And then I'm like, all right, it's my turn to play. And like, <laughs> he's like, you're never going to win. And I was like, oh, I'm going to win. <laughs> I'm going to beat you. <laughs> I took on this crazy situation. I know, right? <laughs> and then we're playing and I see him like he had like programmed codes, which I didn't even know oh, he could do. No. He had like. And I still beat him. <laughs> I don't know how. I was just pressing a bunch of buttons. It was just God was on my side and he needed to be shown that I could still kick his butt. Amazing. But it's times like that that are like super fun. Or when we sit down and we like beanbags are all in the living room and we're all like watching a movie together and we're having like popcorn and, you know, M&Ms or him and my nine year old and myself went to Gainesville a couple weeks ago and... We, we never get time alone or like separate, you know, with the yeah, kids. Yeah. And so it was like 24 hours, but it was like the best 24 hours ever <laughs> to like be away yeah. with them separately. And we were there for a reason. So 
we each got individual time as well um, right. with each of the kids. So stuff like that to keep them like that, And engaged. that's like we recently went uh, and had a short vacation um, with uh, four of my kids. And then the week after, I just took three different kids and uh, we went sailing and it was a really neat experience, especially because when you have a lot of kids, there's certain dynamics that happen in the house. Yes. Um, and in this particular situation, two kids who really struggle with each other, mostly because of a third child who is normally playing with one of them. And then the other one is a little left out and then feels rejected and then projects, you know. Yeah. Um, so having these two together and seeing them like best friends for the two days we were gone, like <laughs> I can't stop. I can't stop looking at the pictures from that trip and seeing the big goofy smiles with their arms around each other's shoulders. That's awesome because they've really struggled to connect. So I think it's important also because I get alone time with various kids um, yes. when you take smaller groups and like my <laughs> husband stayed home with some and I went and then he had a great experience having more individualized attention with kids that he normally doesn't because one of the kids I take is usually, you know, attached to the hip with him. But Right. Yeah. No, having that has been great. I took four of the six to Universal Studios and even that was nice, but it's weird because I really missed having the other two. Yeah. Even though it's like, you know, it would have been harder to have the baby. And, you know, the older one didn't go because she didn't think she would, you know, have a good time um, with certain rides and stuff. And she didn't want me to waste my money because she's Aww. very kind and considerate. Yes. I really need to meet all her kids. Like, I, <laughs> like, I'm obsessed with them now. <laughs> so, um so, yeah, even having that smaller group was great, but I found myself, like, also kind of anxious to get back to the yeah, other ones because it's that. like a piece of me is missing. Yeah. What are your goals to make positive change in our community? My goals are to continue to advocate mm -hmm. for the kids and advocate for change in the system when appropriate within my lane and within my space. And that means partnering with the various agencies or licensing and placement and just constantly having a line of communication. So if I have an idea about something, it is communicated, they can run with it or not. Um, talking with other foster parents um, because they have really good ideas and generally talking to people that I know, then they talk to other people that they know and that widens the scope of foster parents or people that support foster parents speaking out communicating and now sharing my story and I think sharing my story and what I experienced in a positive way can help the community as a whole maybe it'll make other foster parents not judge others so quickly mm -hmm. maybe they'll take a second look when they see an article or a news story and not be so quick to judge maybe it'll make them think twice it because is I was siblings and I keep going back to like when you first got licensed and you were asked will you take these kids they have a sibling we want to put siblings together and you just were like sure you didn't even know them I didn't know you them got engaged 
in this fight <laughs> that you didn't sign up for. I did not sign up for this fight. I had no idea. I knew this was going to be hard. This is not what I was expecting. But I am so much stronger for it. And I know so much more. And I kind of feel like I can conquer anything at this point. <laughs> you probably can. <laughs> There's a lot of talk of like foster parent burnout and things like that. And all this has done is flame my fire to keep going mm-hmm. because I might be one person, but one person changing one other person's life or these three lives, they're going to go out and change other people's okay. lives. Seventeen, And there's been 17 that yeah. have been in the home. Yeah. So there is this domino effect. Oh, yeah. And I sure as hell want to be a part of that. (laughs) Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for giving me my voice. Thank you for letting us hear it. (laughs) Wow. Thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe and follow us on social. We hope that you join us again next time and keep on fostering the future.